It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Recording started. Recorded live. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation or around the world. Once again, you are listening to the VMware Communities Roundtable Podcast. This is podcast number 582. My name is Eric Nelson, and with me today, I have my regular co-host, Matt Longeth. Today is, let's see, today is actually Tuesday, November 23rd, because this is Thanksgiving week, so we're doing it a day early. Matt, how are you doing today? Yes, Eric, special episode this week, a day early. It's Thanksgiving holiday here in the, the U.S. for all our U.S. listeners. And, you know, I hear all these things about pricing increases for, you know, consumables and food goods and, and product surges and whatnot as we come on to that Thanksgiving holiday. But sometimes I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Because, you know, Aunt Jean's green bean casserole that we were forced to choke down and smile and acknowledge might be a little delayed or, or set aside for a new dish this, this time of year so. We have to take advantage of these things <laughs> in all things supply chain. So, uh, you know, not necessarily a, a bad thing as we come to the, the Christmas and Thanksgiving season. But, of course, sir, how are you? How are things out on the West Coast? And most importantly, what is the color of the bay today? All right. It's, it's, we're doing well. And just as you say that, uh, my wife asked me yesterday, can we stop making that green bean casserole with the with the mushrooms and uh, cr- crunchy onion stuffs on top? And I'm like, no, you may not. You may not. I want my green bean casserole. But uh, it is beautiful weather here. It's crisp and chilly. We're coming into the winter season. We've had our rain. It's uh, dried up a bit and it's crisp and chilly now. And the, the leaves are all uh, changing. So if you're in the U.S. somewhere, you're probably experiencing the same thing. Winter is upon us. And so uh, looking forward to that. On the show today, we're going to be talking about the truth about Kubernetes, the benefits and the challenges. We've got Michael Cote here, member of the technical staff in Pivotal. So uh, we'll, we'll get to Mike in a second but before we do that uh matt any news on v experts i think that's the only thing we've got today with regard to what's happening in uh, the the world we do second half of 2021 v expert applications will open up here very shortly 12 6 so vexpert.vmware.com for the application itself and if you have any questions about the you know the particular application process be sure to reach out to your local vExpert Pro who will help you guide through submitting your uh, necessary pre-qualifications as part of that application submittal. Excellent. All right. And with that, we'll just get right into it. Uh, well, let's uh, introduce uh, Michael and Mike uh, or Michael. Uh, tell us, we always start with, you know, who are you? We're a community podcast. So who are you? What's your career arc? How did you get where you are today? How long have you worked at Pivotal or VMware? Uh, just to get to get to know you a little bit before we get into the, the topic today. Oh, okay. Well, as I always tell my daughter when she asks me what's wrong with me, I say, uh, I say, how long do you have? But I'll try to keep it brief. Right. We we give uh, you we give you on this show five minutes here, maybe five to okay. seven minutes to oh, tell us that, a little that, bit about yourself. Who are you? How did you get here? That, that'll be plenty. Well, uh, I'll go reverse chronological order. So yeah, I work I work uh, well at VMware in the Tanzu Group, uh, and uh, so we're doing the Benjamin I, Button version of Michael today, right? That's right. That's okay. right. I'm gonna I'm gonna die as a baby, which I guess is sad, but you know something about the supply chain, I think requires. That's, that's what it's about. Exactly. So I work, I work in the Tanzu group and uh, I work on something called the developer advocate team, uh, which is pretty self-descriptive, but I don't actually work with developers nor advocate for them really. What I more do is I talk with managers and executives and enterprise architects about uh, just basically getting better at doing their software or digital transformation when it comes to custom written software. And so what we in Tanzu do and at Pivotal where uh, I come from with, you know, VMware acquired them at some point, uh, 
essentially we have both products that we sell that like help you run your software better, but a lot more of what I talk about and what people are challenged with is more of the methodology of doing agile software development and design driven software or cloud native development as some people call it nowadays and getting at a point where you do software on basically like weekly release cycles. And it's very, uh, very user driven, if you will, observing what people do with it. And so, you know, we work mostly with larger organizations, just from government agencies to banks to stores, like uh, back in the States, like Dick's Sporting Goods or Kroger and, uh, you know, those those kind of places, uh, JPMC, the usual enterprise software people that, uh, that you work with. And with them, we all work on essentially, they want to, uh, as I was saying earlier, get better at doing their software. Like Home Depot is a well-written up example back in the States of what we do. Here's a fun fact for you. I live in Europe. If you say hardware store, no one knows what you're talking about. You have to say DIY store. There's also a German hardware store called Hornbach, and it is exactly like Home Depot, but in no way associated. Like, you go into it, and it has burnt orange instead of bright orange, and they use that same fake felt-tip marker thing. So, you know, next time you're uh, in Germany, go to a Hornbach. They have free bathrooms, easy to use, unlike the entirety of the rest of Europe. So, we, you know, it'll be companies like that, and, you know, it's essentially like uh, I bring that up because, for example, you know, when you go to Home Depot, there's uh, you go, go get custom paint and there's actual software that they use at that desk just to run that. <laughs> and so, like, sure, that's an example yeah. of like some something that we do there. So anyways, I started working at Pivotal in like 2015 or so, um, uh, basically in this role of studying what people would do with software and talking with customers and speaking at conferences. And I do a lot of podcasts and videos and write books and stuff like that. Uh, but before that, I was uh, a research for just a little bit at this place called 451 Research. And then before that, I worked, I'm originally from Austin, Texas. I worked um, at Dell uh, in corporate strategy and M&A, of all things, helping out uh, with the software, creating a software group there, like acquiring Quest and some other things. Um, and then there, uh, Dell had a public cloud business for a little bit that I was uh, in charge of the strategy for it before they didn't have it. And then before that, I worked at a firm, an analyst firm called Redmonk. Uh, I was the first person that they hired into there. You might have encountered their like programming index that they do nowadays. They right, do all sorts uh, of right, other right, stuff. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that was fun. I started working there in tw 2006. Yeah. And before that, I was a programmer for like 10 years at, uh, oh, well, relevant. It's fun at VMware. People actually know who BMC software is. So I worked at uh, BMC for a long time on... Um, basically the rewrite of patrol, uh, which was called performance manager. Um, and so I'd done a lot of stuff there. And then I worked at an online banking startup before that back in the nineties. And before that, when e-commerce was new and so, like, so wait, you're really going back to Babyland, where, where you must yeah, be like yeah. eight years old now. So you're writing code at eight years old, right? And then, that's right. Yeah, that's you're, right. You're going to, I think, I think, I think, yeah, pretty much eight years old or, right. or more like 15 or 16. But <laughs> that's, uh, that, that was, that was my entry into uh, programming is like, you know, I like messing around with computers and the CEO of this startup that we literally, we used VRML at some point to do like, you know, in the late nineties, the immersive going into a mall kind of shopping around sure, is pretty right. awesome. Yeah. And uh, I think, I think what the CEO figured is that high school kids were dirt cheap right? Like you could, they could program and you could pay them uh, next to nothing. And uh, yeah, we tried to like sell cowboy boots online. And I think we sold maybe four of them. But uh, the CEO figured out that banks pay their bills on time. So we did online banking software for community banks. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's awesome. I was waiting for you to say, and then before that, I wrote some programming for the BBSs where you dial in on the 1200 baud <laughs> modem. And before yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I was on punch cards. And before that, I was using vacuum tubes. No, oh, like, no, I'm not that old, but I did, I, did, I did run a BBS for quite some time. And uh, I did play Leisure Suit Larry on an IBM XT with my dad. I don't know if that was advisable. Uh, but we played all those Sierra games where you got the little highlighter, you got the hint book, and you would like highlight to find out like you know what to do. Yeah, I really sure. like the uh, yeah. Was it was it King's Quest? No, there was maybe it was that. They, I, King's Quest was a different one, but there was one where you like there was a three part game, and you were this little guy, and you could be like a thief or a warrior, and like train up. Right, and it was. Uh, it was, it was good stuff. Well, your career matches a lot of my career. Uh, same same kind of things. And it's funny, I saw an article today that uh, when I was reading this morning on 
what major technologies happened on your birthdays, right? Your birthday mm. years, right? And it started yeah, from yeah. this and it went all the way back to, um, you know, I think 1955 or something like that, which was before I was born. So that's good. Mm. Uh, and the key technology in, uh, I was born in 1962 was satellites, right? So the, the first satellite <laughs> uh, that they had satellites you could bounce things off of, but never an active satellite that would actually receive a signal and then transmit it in a different place. Okay. which is interesting okay. to look every year at what new technology has been introduced every year, right? Like the digital, uh, a digital computer chip showed up, I think three years later in 1965 or something like that. And it's like, yeah. And then you realize that all of us have these same career life arcs because the technology gets introduced. And then they, they mentioned like, okay, this introduced four years ago. And then by six years after that, it was mainstream, right? So it seemed like it took, it took about four to six years for when they invented it. And the first instance showed up to when it became mainstream and we were all doing it as, as a society. And yeah, uh, the question is, if you ever had any kids, did you, what year did the Oregon Trail show up on, on your computer, right? Where your kids are sitting <laughs> trying to make it to the West Coast without dying. Was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, no, no diphtheria. You don't want to get that. Yeah, that just wipes you Dysentery. out. Yeah, That's yeah, the yeah, one that you get. yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. I don't even know what diphtheria is. I think you get a shot for that nowadays. Yeah, so. I, I know what dysentery is. I'm, I, I, I know, I know that one. Don't know about diphtheria. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, so that that brings us up to the to to the show topic today, the truth about Kubernetes. And thanks for sharing. That was a good narrative and uh, nice to know. I it, it seems like you're a a computer consultant, but uh, sorry, developer consultant, right? Where but you're not you're not consulting on developers, you're consulting on how developers are supposed to develop, right? And uh, Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I I, you know, to 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 be embarrassingly honest, I haven't actually written code since like 2006. So I used to be a developer, but like, you know, kind of going back to the present, like what, what I, once I became an analyst at Red Monk and went through strategy and, and like with the, however many years it's, I started at, at Pivotal in 2015. So how long that was like, what I've really grown interested in is like, particularly at large companies, um, like how they, how they change a huge part of how the company does software. Right. And like the thing in my mind is always like, you know, so like I, I was, you know, you go to you go to all the conferences, as, as I know y'all do and other sure. people. And there's always there's and especially when it comes to software, there's always a um, out in the world. There's always these presentations of how a a tech company or a startup or some some small company where you got to like, you know, vacuum the floors at the end of the night, like where they have figured out a great way to do software and they give a presentation on it. Um, and I always think, you know, that's wonderful. But, you know, if you have a company of like even a hundred developers, right? That's just supporting a tech thing. Like that's a lot different than if you're like a huge bank with like 20,000 developers and you're literally like 150 years old <laughs> as right. a company, right? Right. And so like right. what I've gotten interested in is like how, when you're at that big company, how do you improve the way you do software? As the people used to say, like be like a tech company or kind of shift over to that more product way, as we would say in Tanzu land doing software. And what that does is like, for what I pay attention to is I don't, I mean, I pay attention to the, the, the techniques and what people do on development teams. Cause that's incredibly important. Right. But the, when I talk with like the, the like head of transformation and VP of apps and executives, what they struggle with is like, it's hard to put it in a way that gives it, that sounds like the magnitude of the problem, but basically they're just like, people don't want to change. <laughs> right like that's that's what it often amounts to so there's all sorts of like uh like tactics and things and strategies people put in place to like try to change large organizations around and that becomes like a different body of work than just what happens on a development team which is fascinating on its own but it's kind of like to go back to your green beans thing right like one can imagine a green bean casserole that actually is tasty and delicious and but the question is how do you get that Right. Like yeah. every time we try to make this good green bean casserole, it comes out really um, bad. Yeah, because you don't so, know how to do it the first 20 times. Right, right. And so, so you got to yeah, learn new right, techniques and right. all sorts of things to right. get to the, uh, the ideal casserole. Or yeah. you have to deliver your green bean casserole and be held accountable to a board. And you're working <laughs> with a seriously, you know, let's say that your tooling has been built around building that green bean casserole the exact same way 
for 20 some years. And that's right. The Greenville and Craftsville Delivery Network is all integrated into all of those other facets. So yeah. if you change any given one component of your, I don't know, your toppings, your, your collection system, how you're cooking, even the salt that you boil the green beans in, everything else falls apart. Oh, and what if it just goes terribly wrong? And I guess you also have these old aging uh, recipe cards, kind of like punch cards. And what if they fall apart and no one knows how to read them anymore? And then, and then you, you don't even know where to start. Next thing you know, you sign a huge outsourcing contract with like some restaurant and you're stuck doing that. Very, very frustrating. You know, uh, you know what they say, no one ever gets fired for choosing a green bean casserole. Right? That's right. The, uh, the IBM throwback. We're right? carrying this analogy way, way, way yeah, no, far. You know, we're, it's Thanksgiving week, folks. We're recording this on Thanksgiving week and we're publishing it. So why not? Why not? All right. But, so but It is a thing, right? I mean, we see this all the time in large financial institutions, healthcare, manufacturing and whatnot, where we have hundreds of if not millions of, excuse me, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars thrown into refactoring of these applications through major consulting firms and whatnot. And it all steps south because of the level of integration and legacy that are out there with these enterprise programs that are in sometimes written in, you know, assembly or COBOL or whatnot. And it's just iterated from one version to the next, just to maintain some level of compatibility but how do you make that change how, how do you step up to that next iteration and forego some of that legacy code that's out there i'm sure it's a very difficult program yeah yeah i think i think well uh, well there's a couple of things like the first thing that i find with people when i talk with them and i try to tell them is is like the first thing to do and this is really hard bringing up your green bean casserole board who always wants results they, they want to see you know what's happening is like you got to start like really small and slow, kind of like a really nice smoked brisket, right? You want to do it very slowly, not you know, learn how to do it correctly. You're going to mess it up. And like, so that's the first thing that I see people being successful with is the magnitude of the problem is huge, but they have to somehow think and really like prime the organization to be like, we're going to spend six months, maybe even 12 months just like figuring out what we're doing. We're gonna pick a few simple initial projects and kind of use them as, I don't know what the analogy, what, what the word is, but use them as sort of like um, learning apps, <laughs> right? Like, cause we have these new new stacks of technology we're gonna be using. We're following- We're not gonna change the main the dish. We're, we're gonna do a little bit of a, a sampling That's right. course. Right? That's right, because, because you know everyone knows the casserole turns out according to how it was cooked. The ingredients need to be fresh, but a lot isn't how it's cooking, right? So you wanna learn how to be a better, newer cook by starting with different dishes that are less, I don't know why the bean, bean casserole is the highest priority, but you know, that are less stressful to mess up with because you know, that, that's what becomes good. And then as you do more and more of these projects, you move on to bigger and bigger things, right? But this also allows you, going back to, to actual software, this also allows you to start to understand and find kind of like those old things that need to be modernized or you need to somehow code around defensively, right? Like, like there's inevitably you're going to encounter some ERP system if you're selling something, right? And you're going to encounter like a, uh, you know, a, a CRM or a customer system, right? Where you, you need to pull customer things from. And like, you don't really want to set yourself up to like deliver changing everything in a year or maybe even two, because you also don't really even know what you need to change, right? Like you've just got all this stuff. And so that's a lot of like, in, in part of in Tanzu land, we have this consultancy they would never call themselves this but but it's a consultancy around like modernizing how you do oper operations and development but they also have a pretty big practice on going through that analysis of just finding those initial apps to change around and then the other thing that like i mean you do all the obvious things that's always the answer of any airport business book about how to improve your life or your business is just do the obvious things but then the 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 trickier thing that i i see people doing who are successful that they skip over is, and you know, people here will appreciate this, but like you do a tremendous amount of like internal marketing and training, right? So one of the, the you know, if you think about it, one of the main reasons people don't want to change is one, uh, they don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> right? Like what these new things are. And then two, like, especially in a large organization, generally 
doing anything different, let alone changing, is extremely risky for an individual, right? right. Like the fear of loss is greater right, than right. the desire for gain. Right, right. Like you're there, you know, you've been working there one, five, ten years, doing your your green bean casserole the same way. It's always been fine. Might be a little rush, but then it's over. Every everyone is, you know, you're still employed. And someone comes to you and they're like, we're going to do something totally different. You're going to be on a different development cycle. Not only that, but you'll have the pleasure of owning and sharing more responsibility for the actual outcomes. And first of all, you're like, I don't know what an outcome is. I need to go look that up. Sharing in the actual business outcomes of this work that you're doing and have more of that responsibility. And so, you know, as an individual, if you do that calculus in your head, it's like, so... The nature of my job is changing. I'm taking on more risk. And I didn't hear anything about getting more pay. And so it's sort of like there's all sorts of management and, and extend this upward through the management chain and on and on, right? And so like there's a lot that goes into working with people to show them that things are better if they adopt a new system, that they should go through taking on this risk and go through this change. And a lot of that comes down to just like uh, marketing. So doing more than like, uh, you know, we, we get these too because we work at a large organization, but you got to have more than the, the monthly email newsletter uh, that tells you what's going on. There's a lot of hands-on kind of explaining the transformation, how things are differently, but then also going over like, look at these teams of people who changed over and now they only have to work 40 hours a week, right? Like what's the direct benefit that you have right. to a person? Never yeah, mind. Branding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah think, never think, mind. Never mind the business outcomes. I, I think whatever it was, those are. It was super easy when virtualization came along, and even it was challenging. But you could actually say, "See those twenty servers in Iraq? You know, you're going to be able to turn off seventeen of them totally. and run your workload on the three, and you're going to be able to go home home for the weekend. And you know, if, if something goes wrong, you're going to be able to just V motion from one to another, and your life is going to get significantly easier. I feel like Kubernetes. When I when I start looking, at it, I go like, "This is going to get significantly harder for some amount of time as we absorb." Because it's, one, you can't point at physical machines and go, "This is what's going to happen for you." It's going to be way better. It's like it's a learning experience to learn what the benefits of these things are going to get you when you're done with a with a with a project. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think I think uh, yeah, at, at the Kubernetes level, that's certainly true, right? And I think you know I. I didn't really like live firsthand through the, 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 the motion, so to speak, to like virtualization. So, you know, it's hard for me to have like that firsthand knowledge of it. But I think what you describe is absolutely true, right? And I think, I mean, I can't make an analogy back to that. But like, so first of all, like if, if I'm always interested in how much Kubernetes usage there is, and having been an analyst, I'm always really careful to separate out uh, penetration versus market share, right? Penetration being like, like you see this figure in surveys all the time. I think even in our surveys, we'll put this in that like, you know, 80% of respondents say they're using Kubernetes. Well, you gotta be really careful because that means they might just be using like one container somewhere, <laughs> right? right? In their entire organization. So I always try to hunt down more of a market share. And at the moment, you know, depending on what analyst you go to, I mean, I think that's around like maybe 10 maybe 15% of enterprise workloads globally like run on Kubernetes, right? And like, so I think, I don't know at what point that puts Kubernetes relative to like virtualization, but I have to imagine at some point virtualization also seemed like a weird beguiling thing, right? Like it was a new skill yeah. set that you had to learn and a new, new everything that you have to learn, right? It, and it, I think that... It had moments like that. I mean, one of the turning points for VMware was when uh, EMC at the time, who owned all the storage, was willing to back us up saying that we'll guarantee that, you know, your storage will remain consistent, you know, from moving from physical to virtual, right? And before yeah, that, totally. enterprise wouldn't touch it because they were worried that their data was going to get destroyed on their storage devices, right? And so until, yeah, and yeah. then EMC bought us because because they did that and they moved, they saw the movement and the increased purchase of storage because you were no longer using storage on the computer. You had to buy mass storage units to put your VMs on. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah. it was that it was the taking away the risk factors that helped that. But so we certainly in the P to V timeframe had to deal with that. Right. Yeah, no. I, and I think, I think it's very like, if this was even like two years ago, it would kind of be before that moment in the Kubernetes world, it would be like all sorts of talk, and, 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 you know, very, very early adopters using it. 
but there wasn't, for lack of a better phrase, that kind of enterprise greatness <laughs> to right. it, right? And, yeah. and, 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 you know, especially, and storage continues to be one of the most, um, difficult is the wrong word, but sort of like important parts is, is, is a good way of putting it, right? Because, yeah. you know, if you, to the complexity of Kubernetes, right? Like one of the things that you have to get over with Kubernetes when you're kind of learning about it is um, there are a lot of benefits and awesomeness that people describe of Kubernetes, right? It is genuinely a very good way, a very well thought out and good way of essentially like modeling infrastructure, right? Like it's extremely stripped down there's a very limited amount of what they would call primitives or just the things, right? Like there's a node, a container running in a node, which you could think of as a process. Right. And then there's storage and networking. So it's very, that's the huge benefit of Kubernetes is you're, you're removing all of the variability at a certain layer of that stuff. There's just like, yeah. Let me take thing. a stab at what you're talking about. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, which, which for me is like, infrastructure used to be like programming where everything was serial, right? You know, you, you had serial programming and maybe you would call functions here or there, but mostly it was on servers and racks and your application sat as a monolithic thing on the server and the rack and yep. it was very serial. And I feel like Kubernetes is bringing object-oriented kind of programming where everything was an object and you could glue your objects together and your objects were kind of like separate. The data was an object. And I look at Kubernetes and it's like, it's treating that infrastructure like objects where you have components, you, you have pods and you have, you know, elements right. that are part of your infrastructure now and then you can do a lot more with object-oriented programming as we all know is 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 nice because the, the it's self-contained and then i can move it somewhere else or i can edit that one object and then that object behaves yep. it's a way to organize things with that object-oriented programming comes complexity you'll hear you'll see articles on the complexity of object-oriented versus serial programming but nonetheless it gives you a lot more power to do way more complicated things manageable yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I think breaking it up into, you know, words like object or component or module or, you know, whatever, that, that's exactly it, right, is we now have this small box of, a box of a limited amount of components, which means uh, it's a lot easier to assemble them together. Right. <laughs> right, like, right. like, you know, back, back, to, to go back in time, right, like back, I'm judging from when we were all kids, there was a lot fewer Lego parts. Right. So basically, sure. I don't know how many there were, but they were they were pretty basic. And nowadays, you know, there's so many different Lego parts that you get these weird parts and you're like, I have no idea what to do with this. Right. And so it kind of adds to a mess there. Whereas more of what Kubernetes aspires to is that simplified box of Legos. Right. Now, I think to your point, I mean, this is this is a general like issue is like us computer people. Once we simplify something, we're like, ah, now we can complexify again. <laughs> right. right like right. like um anyhow so so the first thing is is to your like you hear all these uh genuinely good claims about what kubernetes can achieve for you but as you start kind of stripping it back you realize that like a lot of like object-oriented programming is and like a lot of new ways of doing cloud infrastructure uh, and as you were just describing with having to stick some storage into virtualization underneath it there's still a lot going on Right. So there's there's really nothing if you were to go, so to speak, download Kubernetes and run it like it doesn't really like manage your storage for you. That's something that you need to integrate into. And it doesn't necessarily integrate all of your networking for you. You still need to handle that. Right. And there's all sorts of things to help out with that, of course. But like that's one of the first things that at least I struggled with when I was learning about Kubernetes is I kept trying to figure out like, all right, where's the part that actually like moves the bits around the network and where's the part that moves the bits around in storage and it's like so many things like this right like there's it's not called a driver that's a weird name for it but you know there's various components that you integrate with underneath to make sure that like it does those things for you and so you know it's good to think of kubernetes as like uh a layer on top of other infrastructure <laughs> right like there's still that need for the infrastructure to be managed underneath it and that's why like you know, for example, right? Like a lot of a lot of the Kubernetes that we see in large organizations runs on top of the VMware stack, right? Because the VMware stack still does all of that management of infrastructure underneath it, 
rather than VM. I mean, rather than Kubernetes just being like, you know, all the way down to the metal. Right. Like, <laughs> and, and, and talking about the maturity of this, there were, there were a lot of articles uh, that were maybe like maybe three years ago when Kubernetes were just starting to be adopted in the enterprise. There were like tons of articles that were talking about the failure of projects, right? That were actually happening and that the complexity drove the project over budget by like $5 million. There were like a lot of these kind of stories that were happening because everything was so immature that you had a kind of a glue components together sure. there was no yeah. vendor that was building you know solid platform and solid software offerings you had to kind of make choices and the choices you were making were like the startup's been there for a year and a half right or they they're, they're the startup is like and they've built this piece that you could use and then if you really knew what you were doing you would you were a great open source person you knew what to choose and you could build it and it would be successful but many people that were trying to build these implementations would get a, a piece that they had selected and it was by three guys in a garage and it just didn't work right uh to the level it needed to so there were a lot of those stories but i i feel like now I don't see those any longer. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's definitely the case, and it's it's because what one could predict from what you're saying that there are there are more mature product offerings and services from from public cloud providers. So I mean, overall, Kubernetes has been around. Uh, I'll probably get this wrong, five six years or so. And so, like, I mean, for for as big uh, uh, and broad a technology as Kubernetes is, right? Like, it kind of takes at least that long before you have a good general purpose chunk of infrastructure, right? I mean, you've got to, you know, just like you're saying with like EMC coming on board, right? Like all of the the large enterprise vendors, not all of them, but they need to come and actually, as we are at VMware, like become a part of that community, right? And and add what's, what, uh, what, what you have there. And I think, yeah, I mean, we would especially see this uh, at Pivotal because we, we had, I mean, essentially, like we had what what people looked as a rival to to Kubernetes after a while, and so we would often encounter people who are building their own uh, stack instead of using. It used to be called Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Now it's called the Tanzu Application uh, Service. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it's you know it's a platform as a service like Heroku and things like that. Right. But anyways, we would encounter people who are building their own Kubernetes stuff, and yeah, there's a lot of. Um, uh, it's it's easy to get up and running bias. I don't know if that's one of the official biases from thinking fast and thinking slow, but it's sort of like that initial thing of getting set up is easy, but then you know, uh, uh, you have to like man, you have to manage it and upgrade it, and you know, you would see this. I imagine this happened in virtualization as well. Back when people were trying to figure out what a type three versus type two and all those kind of different ways of doing virtual. I've never seen anyone talk about that anymore, uh, but like. In the OpenStack world, you would see this constantly, right? Where people would get OpenStack and, and they would build it on their own. And this would this start this happened in the Kubernetes world a lot too, where it was really easy. Well, it was possible to get right. it up and running. Right. And then as the months went by, you wouldn't upgrade it, and people would leave because they knew how Kubernetes worked. And like you ended up basically being your own software vendor for a stack. And some people do that now, but. All, going all the way back to your point, now that there are many um, offerings where you don't have to build it on your own, uh, there's a lot more success out there and a lot more uh, hope. You know, it, it, it does bring this memory back of where, you know, there would be a project lead and they would come in, they would do it for two years, right? When a wave comes through, there's these guys who can swim, get on the wave, come in and then, you know, take advantage of that wave build something for two years and then they hop off and jump back, paddle up and you get on another wave. Right. And you're left with, you know, and I'm one of these long-term guys that have been in VMware now for 15 years before this, I was at sun for 15 years where you're picking up the pieces, trying to manage what they've built from all these pieces. And when you ever have new waves, you have a set of people that are swimming out on the edge of the wave, you know, helping build these things. But because everything's not mature, then they jump off and leave and you've got to deal with, you know, what what someone created. And you're basically tearing it down and rebuilding it again as the as the as the technology matures across that wave. And so that's kind of like a pattern that I see that you know I think everybody yeah. goes through. Uh, thank goodness this wave is now m- m- more mature and, you know, you have 
real vendors you can build things on. And the the hipsters that come through, and I, I'm talking my age now, right? Like the hipsters that come through, the 28 year olds um, that I have to deal with putting, you know, together, you know, real solutions that last an enterprise for 15 years, you know, that that has gone away to where now people are actually talking about, you know, uh, mature products that can build implementations. But then you have this, what do I choose? How much do I invest decisions to make? Because everything comes at a cost. So it is a, it's an in interesting time. Um, I want to stop here and just do a shout out to your blog, which is you have a really great blog. And the reason you're on the show is because we come across blogs and uh, we, we that are trending. And uh, this one, tanzu.vamra.com, uh, it's State of Kubernetes uh, Survey 2021 Benefits and challenges. So I want to do a shout out to that blog. I think you can just go Google that um, and 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 find it. But it's at tanzu.vmware.com uh, and then slash content slash blog slash state dash of dash Kubernetes dash survey dash 2021 dash benefits dash challenges. I'll put it in the talk shoot chat and I'll put it on the YouTube uh, YouTube live chat as well if you happen to be following us. Uh, why don't you talk? tell me a little bit about that blog? Uh, what It's a great blog, by the way, but why don't you take us through that blog for a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is, I think this is maybe the third survey we've done about uh, the, the state of Kubernetes. And like, you know, I, I've kind of hit on some of the things uh, that I like to see in a survey like this. And and to be clear, they just ask me to kind of write up findings from it, right? There's a whole whole bunch of other people actually do the survey and uh, and put these things together. But I think I think what's interesting to look through uh, in this is, I, I mean, based on what we're saying, is um, one kind of like the amount of uh, production Kubernetes that's used, right? And you see you see that rising and it's also good to bring in, there's another great Kubernetes survey that the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the CNCF does. And they have a, if you go look up kind of like um, Kubernetes running and development testing, I forget if they have staging, but but also production. It's kind of fun to look up the uh, the numbers there. Um, but, you know, a lot of what we focus on in, in this survey is, um, of course, people who are doing on-premise uh, versus off-premise deploys, right? And uh, I think there, there's a, a pretty good um, shift in not only, there's actually a shift down from doing on-premise deployments. It's like in this survey, it's like 55% of the respondents uh, say that. But what that goes to is like, I mean, all of us are always talking about multi-cloud, managing multiple stacks of infrastructure and multi-cloud being the case, which you see in, in that instance, right? So there are people running, you know, they don't just run Kubernetes in one place. They often run it in multiple in multiple places, right? So there's that, you know, getting to your point of, of building a stack and the tools around it, right? Like that's a, right. that's a lot of things to, uh, to worry about uh, managing your, your Kubernetes instances uh, across multiple uh, clouds. And then to the point, like, you know, as a vendor, it's easy to kind of go and you know who who wants to sell you something. It's easy to go into the difficulties of something, <laughs> right? Sure. Instead of focusing yeah. in fo instead of yeah. focusing on the uh, the the positive aspects of it, right? So I think that's that's the part that's especially nice to see is what what the benefits people see from it, right? Because you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, there's a lot of complexity and learning to get over, um, but once you do get something in place, and once you've kind of like figured out what to do, it does become eventually as possible as people have with virtualization nowadays, right? And so there's a good overview of benefits that people get from it, right? And there is, um, you know, it may not be possible to actually point to racks, <laughs> but, the, you know, the number one thing that people find is there's better resource utilization, right? Uh, like 58% of people, I don't know. Quoting numbers in here is always sure. a little weird. I think right. it's funner to go through these. But I think I think what really becomes important and what I focused on a lot is being an application developer is that you really, there are huge benefits to improving the applications, the old green bean uh, casserole, if you will, right? So the goal of putting something like Kubernetes in place for me is not, I mean, resource utilization is great. People will talk about like scaling being important. Scaling is always like a cool thing to have. But really, it comes down to like some of the benefits that you see, some of the top benefits, which is shortening the cycle it takes to think of something and deploying it, right? Like I always recommend you should be able to think of some feature you want in your software and deploy it at the end of the week, 
right? And that's a very real thing people see when they're architecting their applications to run on Kubernetes and when it is running on Kubernetes because a lot of the intention and the design and the architecture of Kubernetes is built exactly around that scenario that we want to have our developers be able to deploy things very rapidly. And we want to automate things as much as possible to enable that. We want to standardize the configuration, the way those, those little uh, simple components are done by developers and how they're done in development. So, and, and then equally importantly, <clears throat> I always try to use the word learn instead of fail, but I'll go into fail here. When your deploys fail and your applications fail out, a lot of the way that uh, Kubernetes is designed, it makes it really easy to back out those changes, right? To revert the changes back so you don't you don't bring down production, but also to do things like you know just doing like rolling updates. So uh, like Garmin's uh, a customer of ours, and and what they'll do with a rolling update, for example, is when they have a new change, where are they based in? Um, I always get St. Louis and Kansas City mixed up. I think it's St. Louis. But they, uh, you know, they, they'll deploy it to like part of St. Louis, then all of St. Louis. Then they'll deploy it to the entire state, right? And, and then so forth and so on to like a country. And so you can do these upgrades of, of a new version of a product while running the old version, which anyways, <laughs> there's all sorts of things that you can do when you're running Kubernetes that really target, we're gonna be deploying software every week, if not every day. And it's kind of built around that way of doing things. So, um, and you see those benefits uh, come up in, in the, uh, the answers. That you know, you know, I'm looking at your blog and all right, I just gotta be, a, I, I'm gonna do this now from every pop. I'm just gonna get a little Joe Rogan. I'm gonna be a little sarcastic on you because I, I look at this, I go, the benefits section up at the top of this blog article really talks about all the great ways that's gonna be good for your company and the development and your application is gonna be way better and it's gonna be more responsive. It's great for the company, right? It's, it's no question is absolutely this, improves how quickly you can respond. It improves the efficiency of your development teams because you can architect with these objects and you know shorten software development life cycles, containerized you know, monolithic applications to small objects are much easier to do with, uh, enable you to move to the cloud, you know, be, you know, reduce your public cloud costs. These are this is a great little you know, great little bar chart, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. but I it's, think of IT admins, I think of IT admins and I go, this is this is hell. That's hell. That's hell. This is hell, and oh, that's hell too, right? So I, I look at it. I was like, "Yep, sure, that's going to be great for the business and for developers." But I look at IT operations. Oh, like you're going to be constantly um, rolling up. No, don't roll. Let's just do it all at once and then be done for like six <laughs> months, please. Like uh, rolling things are bad, right? Like constant every week is bad. Or like uh, it's like. So I look at this. I go, "Oh my god, this is like an IT nightmare." And my playing with kubernetes is like i look at it i go yeah this is this is i get it it's it has a lot of these great benefits for the company if you don't do this you're gonna go out of business but talk about like i think an extra workload for it guys who have to keep this stuff running and build a platform and and then we're, i think this is where vmware does come in right because you know if you were to talk about vmotion and how hard it would be to move stack a to stack b you know back before vmware helped you do this it was it would be impossible I look at this too and I go, yeah, these are kind of, it's tricky to take the sugar candy off of this. This is building Kubernetes, you know, infrastructure is not easy, right? But it gives you a lot of benefits. And then I go to your challenge area, the bottlenecks and challenge area of the blog. And I go, oh yeah, I recognize all of these guys, right? Lack of internal experience and expertise. Why? Because it's hard and it's going to take you like <laughs> X number of years to learn this stuff. And you can't find people that are really good at it yet because we're still all trying to figure out how this happens right meeting security and compliance requirements yeah that's right when you have a bunch of objects floating around with lots of peaches like if somebody breaks in good luck trying to figure out where it's going wrong right you know like how what object is what lego piece just snapped off my my pretty little lego thing right so i i feel like there is added complexity to you know building infrastructure that sits on top you know that that, that offers up a kubernetes platform but I think that's where VMware comes into it because they have done an elegant job of stacking it in. And then you almost need to have people like you, Michael, to be able to come in and like help us understand how to get there, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think so 
don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong. You can call me on this because so Joe oh, Rogan no, no, does. No, 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 no. He I, says I think, things think, and then he gets his guests to try to have to defend or I, not I defend. Think, I think I think I think you point out something that I always like snidely look at in in surveys, right? Which is uh, whenever you ask someone what the challenges of new technology are, the top three answers are generally always the same, right? The first one, depending on the age, is lack of skills and you know people knowing how to do stuff, right? Which because it's a new thing, right? And then, and then the second thing is often security. Security is always a problem because security for a new technology is often another learning exercise of going to the security group and essentially um, working with them to re-understand how this new technology meets what the new security, you know, what the existing security rules are, or makes it better, or whatever. Right? I mean, you've got to go and reevaluate the uh, the um, how things fit in there. And then, I don't know, the third maybe is variable. That's a good question what the third would always be. But those top two, always the same for every new technology. I'm sure when people were moving from the, uh, what is it, a vernicular, that bicycle with the giant wheel down to the one with two wheels, it's probably lack of skills and we're not sure if this is secure. We're probably top of the survey charts to figure out that new technology. So I think there definitely are, I mean, there definitely is that complexity. And I think, so the question to ask is like, so what's different? Uh, about this that will not eliminate that complexity, but that will make it a little bit better or incrementally better this time, or at least possible, right? And I think one of the main things that's, I don't know if it's different, but one of the things that helps address it is there is a lot more understanding of helping operations people out. <laughs> that's that's a, that's a weird way of, of putting it maybe, but, um, you know, DevOps has come to mean a whole lot of different things in the past 10 or so years, depending on how when you track the start of that. But also, if you look at kind of a more recent rev of, of DevOps to be sort of like throw words around loosely at site reliability engineering, there's a lot of thinking that went into that ops philosophy that basically is like, what if we got developers to stop writing bad code that brought down production all the time, right? And what if we kind of assumed that like one, the developers have a lot more, to use that word again, responsibility, right? And what that would mean is that we need to build in some functionality, some capabilities into our platform or our stack that empowers them to not keep bringing down production, right? So just as one simple example, right? Like anytime there's a difference in configuration between development and production, something bad is going to happen. <laughs> right? Like anytime you use different tools to set up what the infrastructure looks like, different tools at all, right? Like, or even worse, like a different scheme for configuring the applications you're running, just bad things are going to happen, right? So if you look at what a lot of goes on in the Kubernetes, the actual stack itself and the ancillary projects, a lot of it is just to choose one example here, having the same type of configuration between development and production. Right. And, and not having it be a separate tool chain and a separate thing that you use. So there are uh, a lot of things like that where there's kind of an appreciation, as you were just saying, right, that like if we're not careful, it's just going to be more junk for operations to deal with. <laughs> and so let's bring in the, the troublemakers from the operations standpoint, the developers, and start to change how they do their software. And yeah, not only right. like. Right. Tell them what they should be doing, but let's build the 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 stack. Let's build Kubernetes, and you don't necessarily tell developers this, so that they have less ability to screw things up, right? Like there are more, to use a fanciful word for it, there's more guardrails, right? And you can actually do that with a lot of not only Kubernetes itself, but more importantly, all the stuff you layer on top of it. You can really um, <clears throat> sandbox it, as a developer would say. <laughs> so that it's it's more difficult for them to uh, blow things up uh, in production. Um, yeah, but but you know, so going back to it, I think I think the challenge that we as an entire industry have, and especially as VMware, is is exactly what you laid out there, and it's really finding the I don't know VI admins or like virtualization operators who are running all of this stuff. And helping them just learn a new stack. And maybe not all of them like learn it, right? But identifying people and taking that kind of like slow approach that is deliberate and ha having, you know, training and is kind of a safe way to figure out how to do things. And just in the same way that they trained up to what they do nowadays, 
we can start to uh, work with them to train them up uh, doing Kubernetes things. And I think as just one last thing, right? Like I'm not, like I said, despite working at VMware, I'm not really like a VMware person technology stack wise, right? Like I was a Java developer and things like that. And like my observation and learning more and more about the VMware community is that like, we're getting better about this in like the Kubernetes world, but we need to spend some time to kind of like demystify a lot of the talk that we do, <laughs> a lot of the way that we describe things like, like your object oriented analogy, right? Like, and another thing is, um, and then I'll actually stop when I go over this, but this is a, a, an example I really like. If you, if you read Kubernetes talk, right? There's a lot of talk about APIs and defining an API. Right. Right. And they don't really mean what I think us older people mean when we say API, which is I'm going to call something on a remote machine or a process and hand it some data and it's going to give me something back. Like going all the way back, it's not like, you know, walking, uh, you know, an SNMP MIB or something like that. Or it's not like calling a remote procedure call over SSH or even HTTP. What they usually mean by API is what we would call like a standard like your data standard, like what, what it looks like, what your configuration file looks like that you then pass on to something else that does that for you. And so like, there's a lot of discussion to be had about like, oh, this API word means something different than calling a method, right? Like it's a different way of thinking about things. And that's why there's always this talk of configuration and things. I mean, it's kind of like, there's a different mindset shift that you go through to understand like the way Kubernetes wants you to think and therefore how you, you work with it. Michael, this is, in some ways, it's a fundamental shift, right, for, for standard VI admin. And I say that because I think about, you know, even from the bare metal OS installs, where the traditional VI admin, yes, we knew the OS inside and out. We, we knew the performance tweaks. We may, through the, the, the implementer or whatnot, or through the community, as it comes to the individual application, there's some performance tweaks here and there, but once the application's set up and running, we're either handing it over to an application admin mm. or it's just running on its own, right? And in, in a lot of ways, I, I would think that the average admin, as long as the OS is running, right, th that that's as much as we care. Once once something yeah. at the application level breaks, we're, we're turning it over to application support. Well, this is a paradigm shift, right? Right. I mean, now we're more tied as admins to the application itself more than ever, and I, I think in some ways that that's where the what we talk about and looking back on your survey as far as you know roadblocks and learning and learning curves and whatnot. This isn't that okay. We're taking an OS from bare metal and we're moving workloads. This is now we're abstracting the OS altogether. Right. And how have organizations really made that change, or, or how have you seen out in the in the field, or who has been empowered to to make that shift of well now we're abstracting the OS and now that now as operators as VI admins we need to get involved with the application and the application teams and and sometimes even down to the you know the programming teams of how this application actually works and what the workloads are and whatnot so. How does that shift work? How, how are, are organizations making that change from these traditional admins now over to this new fundamentally different operating model? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't thought about the, uh, the multiple layers of ops in a long time. Like I remember, uh, I, remember, I remember back when I was at BMC reading through the uh, ITEL V2 service uh, book. I forget which one out of the 50 volume set. Not that many, but uh, yeah, it, it was it was a very nice system. <laughs> it, it's probably it's probably like a lot of those things where like I'd love to work at a company that sounds like that, right? Like this, uh, you know, when uh, it, it's uh, no one really implements it exactly as nice as it is. Anyways, um, but I think I think what you're getting to is that what happens is that the need to do operations gets pushed up the stack, if, if that makes sense, right? So um, there aren't as many people needed to get to that blinking cursor of an OS install. 
<laughs> right? Like kind of build up that level because all of that is basically automated. Now you still need people to like figure out automating it correctly. And if something happens to troubleshoot it, but for the most part, as you're saying, right? Like you don't really like build an image anymore. You more just kind of give over to Kubernetes like, hey, when someone asks you to build, do this. And that's it, right? Like, You're and putting I'm, dial tone on the wire. Yes. I've never really dove in and understood the dial tone analogy. But like, I think that's right, because that's what people always say. Um, so yes, exactly. And you're automating that. So at that point, you know, so for example, um, this isn't from uh, our Kubernetes usage, but with the, the Tanzu application server, which is, it's just a pre-Kubernetes thing. It's the same basic ideas behind it of running containers and automating it. But, you know, at a place like T-Mobile, as, as my European friends would make me say, T-Mobile USA, uh, like they have just a handful of, of operations people who basically are helping to manage thousands of applications, right? The ratio is way, way down uh, from what they would traditionally have. And um, so you free up people to focus on other things other than like that raw, uh, that lower level of infrastructure stuff. And so those people either move on to other things, but what they do is they also go through in the same way that developers go through kind of like a rethinking of how they do things, right? To be more operations and more production oriented. And I mean, by the way, we don't talk about this very much. And I don't know if the Kubernetes people like talk about this uh, they're not application developers. They don't necessarily think through this, but like as an application developer, there's a whole lot of stuff you have to learn, not even about running Kubernetes, but how you architect your application, right? The way you break it up into components that can run in a highly networked, high highly ephemeral, like container-based way of doing stuff. So developers have to learn a lot as well. But as you kind of free up these operation resources, what I've seen organizations do is they reform into a different way of thinking about operations, which is, we call it like a platform as a service. Some people call it platform operations. And these teams, instead of just providing that OS, that image, that blinking cursor, what they start doing is they think about themselves as building a product. That product is the platform that they're using. And they start to like literally product manage what they put into that platform. Not only like the basic Kubernetes they have, but all of the, um, the governance around it and all of the tools that are like the build tools that developers use. Um, and they start to talk with developers about what features do you want in the product and what is the best way to implement building your software, the best way to implement monitoring that software on your own and doing basic remediation for it. And so, I mean, what you're doing is taking some of the operations people and also, just as the developers are doing, kind of setting themselves up to do a new type of, of, of management and tooling. And sure, I think there's a, a, a fair degree of people who still focus on that application troubleshooting, right? And, but more importantly, like working closely with developers to not only troubleshoot that initial problem, but also often maybe working with them on several uh, releases of the product for several months but definitely working with them as they encounter a problem and they do the long-term fix for it to think like, oh, well, here's why that happened, right? Like here's the configuration problem that you had and we need to bake that into your development cycle, right? And so it is like, I haven't made it sound any less daunting <laughs> or challenging, but as when you're kind of managing and designing the system, what you're looking for is to reduce all of that time and effort that you need to spend on just building those infrastructure components. And instead, in that same way that we're starting small and picking a few you know, types of casseroles to modernize, right? You take those operations people who are hopefully willing, or you, know, you find some people who are up for this, and you add them to these new projects and this new idea of providing a platform and just as the developers are doing, they're kind of training up to a new way of doing things and learning what, what fits in with them more, which I don't know. There's plenty of developers who don't want to actually do things in a new way. And I'm sure there's operations people as well who don't want to do things in a new way. I don't know. That's, yeah. There's lots of virtualization still left. <laughs> uh, my summary of this, Matt, uh, and I don't know what you feel about this, is that I feel like because cloud is becoming you know ever pre prevalent 
that the your job role and you guys both touched on this a little bit your job role as an it admin is shifting right because we're not cabling we're not racking uh we're, we're hardly even installing os's now because you get cloud from the cloud providers that have the whole stack for you i feel like we're climbing up being in being a little bit of the uh it application person right so you've heard it here which is it's uh, it's almost like it's climbing up into the application you hear ragu and others say it's all about the applications now and i feel like uh, you're a, an application it specialist now uh, if you're going to work in it right um th that's going to be pretty much your new role because the the underlying pieces are being delivered by large cloud providers and what you are worried about now is how is the it how is the application performing in all of these IT components that you've put together through either cloud services or in your own data center. But it, it is much more focused at delivering the application. And therefore, these are this is how the applications are being delivered. And we all need to get where we need to skills to be able to do this. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I would just add, you know, going to the challenges, right? Like, I think there is still I don't know if there will always be, but for, for a long time, there's still the need for people who like know security and networking and storage, right? Like at, at a pretty low level. Cause like I was saying earlier, right? Like, especially when you get into multi-cloud scenarios and like, I mean, even if you're using all just public cloud, like there's a lot of thinking that needs to go through, like, right. how do I do my networking security and storage? And that's the kind of stuff that is, I feel, I feel like, people who know who who can work with kubernetes right that's one one set of small people right the lack of skills but then people who can work with kubernetes and also know how networking storage and security works are an even smaller set of people right, right. and so like like at anything you know anything that like existing operations people who don't know kubernetes but know those skills like they have a lot that they can do in like the Kubernetes world, and uh, it would be incredibly valuable for the for the Kubernetes community and all these developers, everyone, for them to kind of uh, bring that knowledge over. Right. Uh, and you know, you don't want to you don't want a skill con constrained technology stack because then it's too expensive to get all these great benefits. You got to like bring bring the uh, bring the price of having people who know what they're doing down eventually so that you just have ubiquity and, 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 and VMware is also really good at that right I mean that is what we're doing kubernetes and, and tanzu on top of vSphere yeah basically gives you single panes of glass to help you manage the stuff so we're absolutely doing a great job at making that happen and uh, I, I think that's good uh, Cody, we're, uh, Michael Cote, we're at the top of the hour. Uh, we try to keep at an hour. Um, as we, uh, you know, wrap things up, Matt, I know you have the standard questions, so I'll, I'll give you the mic and, uh, let's, let's wrap this guy up. Michael, if our listeners wanted to follow you along on social media, is there a Twitter handle or a LinkedIn that you would care to share? Sure. Sure. So, uh, my Twitter account is just, uh, Cote, C-O-T-E. And, uh, you can follow me there. I, I do a lot of videos and other stuff. Uh, I'm pretty good at shameless self-promotion. So that's where you'll see all the stuff that I do. Fair enough. Thank you. Appreciate Great. you being on and look forward to all the more content that's coming out. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, Michael, because we're on the community podcast, uh, we we are on uh, youtube.com slash vbarbecue. That's where people can go watch the live stream and look at us, or you can listen to us on TalkShoe. Uh, we always f end up with uh, a little bit of a barbecue report because we are vbarbecue. Uh, so question for you, Michael, um, are you going to do any kind of barbecue, anything for turkey, or what is your favorite barbecue story, <laughs> restaurant, um, you got to take us off with uh, a barbecue story of any kind, either Thanksgiving related or not. Sure, sure. Well, uh, you know, I, I live in Amsterdam. I moved here like three years ago where I lived in Austin, Texas my whole life. <clears throat> and, you know, uh, they, they don't have barbecue here I mean, <laughs> by, by, by my standards. There's, there's some places, to, to be fair. The, uh, they barbecue the, an eggplant or something really healthy. That's my imagination. Yeah, of. yeah, yeah. I, I forget what the joke is, but they use barbecue as like the wrong verb or noun. Anyways, and also the meat here in Europe. I don't know what's up with the meat, but it's different. I think it's healthy. I think that's the problem. But 
So my, uh, I was. I think it's Chernobyl. Two. I think all the cars, clouds glow, and it's changed the texture of the meat over there. That's that's, that's yeah, my assessment. Yeah. yeah, it's it's possible to get good meat, but you really have to uh, find it and hunt it down. I'll tell you. I was thinking of this the other day. I'll tell you a funny barbecue thing. So you know, being from Austin, I remember one day. Uh, wow, this is must have been 10, 15 years ago. We went to uh, a trailer. Uh, my wife and I to get some barbecue and they had this like espresso barbecue sauce. And of course you get the brisket to test that out. Right. Like that's how you're going to test things. And I, and uh, I think it was maybe in Yelp or something. I think I wrote like a Yelp review and I was like, Oh, this barbecue was all right. And I don't know about the espresso sauce. Like it's uh, I don't know. I'll give it like three out of five stars. And then it turns out that, that that trailer was like the first iteration of Franklin's barbecue. So clearly, uh, yeah. either either they got a whole lot better, or I didn't know what I was talking about. And I think I'm the first review, <laughs> maybe not for their actual location, but if you go look that up, I think I wrote the first review for that. Your claim to is, fame uh, is the, a mediocre barbecue report on the very first Franklin uh -huh. place. Yeah, 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 that's an awesome story. Yeah. All right, that's that's, that's continuous that's awesome. improvement always in place, even for barbecue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just goes to show you just always leave five stars. Don't ever, uh, Don't, you know, I, that's right. just do that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Make the platform useless because everybody just does five stars. There you that's go. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah, but I'm, I'm coming back in January and I'm going to gain some pounds by eating some proper food when I'm, when I'm in Austin. <laughs> that's funny. All right. With that, everybody have a happy Thanksgiving. If you've listened to this before Thanksgiving, if not, I hope you got some good turkey in you or whatever your choice of food is. Until then, we'll be back again next week with more podcasts. Matt, happy Thanksgiving. Michael, same thanks for being here. Same to our listeners. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.